Bibles uh, to two passages of Scripture we're going to study this morning. One is in Philippians chapter 4, and the other one is in Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 12. While you're turning there, I'd like to uh, announce something. Um, my whole life in ministry, which has um, been a long time, um, has been based on the fact that I really feel very strongly that um, the life of the minister himself uh, reflects on that ministry. And integrity, to me, is an extremely important uh, issue. And uh, humility is a very important issue. And I know that many of you here know me for 18 years now, and you know that uh, <clears throat> attaining and maintaining power and a grip over my church is not me. And, uh, and we have shared leadership. We have servant leadership. I'm perfectly comfortable sitting where you're sitting and being fed by other men here. <clears throat> that being said, I'm, I'm a little bit self-conscious of the fact that um, tonight for our vote, three of the people who are, whose names are going to come up are members of my family. Uh, and I wanted to address that. Because my entire life, I have despised what is called nepotism. And nepotism is where you put your family and friends in positions of power. And sadly, nepotism has very much um, stained Christian ministries for years and years and years. You have a strong leader, and then they give their children the, the, the ministry, and those children are not spiritually mature enough. They're not hardworking. They're not the kind of people that should take over a ministry. And so I never felt that that was ever right. Um, that being said, I want to make some things very clear, and all of the felt my fellow elders will agree to this. They will testify to this, I'm sure. And you can ask every one of them. Number one, I never put any one of the names of my children or my sons-in-laws forward. Never. When, the name, when it came time for leadership to be discussed in the eldership in this church, I took a back seat and let it be, to be discussed. I never brought any of these names forward. And number one. Number two, I never put any pressure on any of my children or my sons-in-laws or my daughters-in-laws to serve in leadership of the church, and they can testify to that. I've never put any pressure on them whatsoever. I've never asked them to serve. I've never said, son, when you grow up, I want you to be an elder in this church. I've never done any of that, okay, uh, at all. <clears throat> and so I always felt that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church, and he alone is to put people forward into, into the church. So that's the second thing. Number one, I never put any of their names forward. I just allowed the Holy Spirit to be at work in this whole thing. Number two, I never pressured any of my children to put their names forward. But number three, I want to say this. I don't want my children at all or my sons-in-law or anybody associated with tribe Jossen to feel in any way uh, self-conscious about serving in the church. I don't want them to feel self-conscious about that. And I'm and, and that and I don't and I want to tell you why. I said, um, <clears throat> and I want to tell you why they shouldn't. They shouldn't, because my children are not moving forward in leadership's position in this church to please me. That is not their goal. I know that is not their goal. And if that was their goal, I would ask them to step down. I love my children deeply, but I love. Christ supremely, and I live 
I live for the glory of Jesus Christ, not for the glory of the Jossin name at all. May that name be forgotten. May Jesus be glorified. I love Jesus Christ supremely. And I know for a fact that those names who are being put up there today, including uh, Carolyn Kinwell, I know that the four people whose names are being put up there are doing it because of their love for Jesus. They're doing it to please Jesus. They're doing it because they want to serve Jesus. And that is, and, and that, um, that is what's gonna take place, and that's what's gonna take place tonight. And so I ask you, um, forget last names this evening. Look at these individuals, and if God has raised them up in your conscience, then put them in positions of, of, of uh, responsibility in the church, and for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake only. If I felt that any one of them were, being, uh, were moving forward because of selfish ambition or pride, I would be the first one to vote against them. I would be the first one to stand against them. But I, I in my conscience, know that the f four people that are being put forward today for service are doing it out of hearts of love for Jesus. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word now. We ask that you would please be with us. We pray that you would give us grace. We pray that you would teach us from your word. Father, we ask that you will help us, that as we seek to live for you and take your wonderful, wonderful promises and live them out in our lives. We pray, Father, that you will just give us grace. And we pray that you'll help us because today we're going to talk about something that is so practical that we deal with every single day. Help us to be good at it, we pray. Help us, we ask. Come to us now in the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have, I have some really great news for you today. Some really good, good news. I, I'm just so excited to share it with you. You ready? Well, wait a minute. Before I do that, let me share with you an illustration, okay? And the illustration has to do with what is called an all-inclusive resort. How many of you here have ever been to an all-inclusive resort? Jamie's shaking her head. Carly has been to one. Okay, very good. Are you guys going to one soon? Oh, you back from one recently? <laughs> I thought you were going to one. Okay, an all-inclusive res uh, resort. An all-inclusive resort means you pay one price and everything is included. Your room comes with that. Somebody will come in and change your sheets and make your bed and there will be food, breakfast is served, lunch is served, dinner is served, snacks are served. Any drink that you want, you just simply go and you, and you order that drink anytime you want. Some all-inclusive resorts are on the beach. You have your own cabana. You have your own uh, uh, easy chair there. You even have people come up to you. Can I get you anything? Can I get you anything? Yes, I, feel, I need a little bit of suntan lotion. They go get suntan lotion and bring it back. Uh, yes, I need, uh, could I have something to drink? They go get something to drink and they come back. An all-inclusive resort. Now, I want you to think about that in, in your mind because that is, I'm going to build uh, off of this illustration at, during, at different times here. Now, back to my good news. I have some great news for you. And here's my great news for you. Every dear children, child of God in this place right now, I have great news for you. You never have to worry again about anything ever in your life. Isn't that great news, by the way? You never have to worry about anything again ever 
for the rest of your life. Nothing. You don't. That's the good news. And listen, here's the even great news with that good news. You don't have to buy something in order to make this happen. You don't have to take a class in order to do this. You don't have to. You, don't, you, you just simply have everything that you need to never have to worry again the rest of your life. So let's explore this. Let's explore this in the Bible. How, how is that possible? How does that work out? How can I get good at this? Look in, of course, Philippians chapter 4, and I'm sure that many of you have it memorized, verses 6 and 7. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says this. Let you, uh, be, not, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Here we have this amazing command, as it were, to be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Absolutely nothing. But in, look at verse 6, everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, how can you have a, a, a statement like this, be absolutely anxious for nothing, not one thing, don't worry about anything the rest of your life ever, it's all based on the fact that there is God in these verses. See this? But let your request, look at verse 4, be, be, 6, be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. This passage is based on the fact that you have an amazing heavenly father, an amazing heavenly father who is very, very capable. And it, 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 at the risk of sounding irreverent here, he is the ultimate all-inclusive, okay, and you have a relationship with him as your heavenly father. And because of that, you never need to worry about another thing again. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Here Jesus refers to the same thing that the apostle Paul is referring to. Again, a very familiar passage, but sometimes it's important to take these familiar passages and rethink them and be re-energized by them, as it were. But Luke chapter 12, verse 22 says this, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add a cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. 
But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, which neither thief, which where nor, no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this passage and so much of the rest of the New Testament verifies the fact that if you are a Christian here today, you are an adopted child of God. You are a child of God. And God has paid a very high price for this adoption. As you know, if you don't know, uh, I will tell you that nowadays adoptions can be very, very, very expensive. And they can cost tens of thousands of dollars uh, for an adoption. And the adoption that we have experienced in Christ Jesus has cost a, such a high price because God gave his only begotten son. The very son of God hangs upon the cross and bleeds to death so that we can have eternal life, so that all of our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be justified into his presence. God has done this. He has purchased this, this us by his son based on his love. In Romans 5, 8, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God deeply loves you. God loves you as a parent loves a child. And just as we parents are hardwired to love our children, you see, God actually created the world the way he did it with with human parenthood, fathers and mothers, uh, loving, uh, in, in, and through their love and commitment, children are, are born. And then they, they, they have this hardwired thing about these children. As soon as a child comes into your life, your child comes into your life, that you, you, you are just hardwired to, to, to care deeply about that child. You, you love that child. You, you want that child's best. You want that child to be safe. You want that child to prosper. You want that child to be comfortable. You want that child to be happy. You want that child's best. You want, you, you, your happiness is, 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 is that they're happy. You, you will do anything to protect that child. You think about that child all the time. And when you're away from the child, sometimes I counsel or new parents, you know, say, hey, get some time away. Go, go out to dinner, get a babysitter. But when you're there, don't talk about the kid. Well, they can't do that. They never can do that. Um, they, they, they're thinking about the kid. They're thinking about the child. We are hardwired toward the children. Now think about this, dear friends. God has that for you. God feels that for you. God's hardwired to be concerned about your well-being, concerned about your, your, your safety, concerned about your protection, concerned that you're fed, concerned that you're clothed, concerned that you have all of those things. God is hardwired towards you. And listen, dear ones, he's a perfect parent. And he's an infinitely good parent. And he is filled with infinite love for you. Parents can get frustrated. Parents can get upset. Parents can like, here, you take this kid. She's driving me crazy. Parents can God is infinitely, infinitely full of love for you. Infinitely good. Infinitely for you. And you are hardwired into his heart as his child. 
Think about that. He's your father. Look at Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 30. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father. Notice how Jesus, the only begotten son, speaks to us, his disciples. Your father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your father loves you and he's giving you this kingdom and he's for you. And he is the infinite God. Now, I could, I could illustrate this in a thousand different ways. I just want to pick one. Nighttime. Nighttime is a time when all of us get scared. Don't be all macho and act like you're not as scared of the night. All of us are. As the nighttime, night gets darker. It's dark. We can't see out our, our, our window through our yard. Maybe flip a light on, but then you can't see beyond that because it's dark. At nighttime, people feel vulnerable. At nighttime, people feel alone. At nighttime, your fears are amplified. A sound that you might hear during the day, at night, it makes you jumpy. At nighttime, we're scared. But listen what the Bible says about nighttime in terms of God. Psalm 139, verse 11 says this. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night, shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but night shines as the day, and darkness and light are both alike to you. See, nighttime, God can see just as well as you can see during the day. Night, night is like day to God. I like to trout fish, and it always confused me how you can catch trout in the daytime but then some of the best time, especially for brown trout, is to catch them is at night, is when it's pitch black. And I'm thinking, how in the world do those fish see under the water at night to attack a lure that goes by them? And the answer is, is that the cones and the, and the, and the bars that we have in our eyes for, for trout are very different than for people. And the, in the daytime, I can't remember what it is, cones or bars or whatever. But anyway, one's forward to allow day vision. And as the, day, as the night changes, as the evening comes, in their eyes, the, the other ones come forward, and now they have perfect night vision. And they can see perfectly at night. God is like, God can see at night just like it's day. And so, dear ones, think about this. God, and also the Bible says this, God never sleeps or slumbers. God never falls asleep. And so think about every night. Every night when you're you're going to bed at night, or you're in bed at night, or maybe you wake up in the middle of the night, God is watching over you. God's awake. He's wide awake. He He doesn't nod off at three in the morning. God's wide awake. He sees your yard. He sees the fields around you. He sees the city that you're in. He sees every home. He sees every person. He sees them as clear as day, and he's awake, and he's watching over you. It would be like this. If you were going to go to bed at night, and you were to pray, and you were to say, God, God, watch over me. Keep me safe. Watch my family. Keep us safe. Please watch over us. It's getting dark, a little scary. What was that sound? Oh, no. God, you got this. God, just watch over And God says, I got this. I'm fine. I'm, I'm watching over you. I'm awake. I'll be awake all night. So 1 in the morning, 1.30 in the morning, 2, two God's sitting there watching you. 
God's, God's caring. He's, he's taking care of you. He's watching. He's watching what's going on in your yard. Not only you, by the way. God's watching every bird in your yard, too. We're going to get to that. God's watching every bird. Not only that, but God's watching every flower. See, he's infinite. He's able to do all this. But God is just sitting there watching. Have you ever had a guard guard you all night long while you were sleeping? I've had it happen to me on two occasions. One is in the Dominican Republic at the compound that we were in. They had a guard that walked around all night long guarding the compound. When I was in Africa, every home had, uh, because of the crime rate and everything, every home hired somebody, and that person would come, and they would walk around the house. There was, it was all fenced in. They would walk around the house all night long, and their, their thing was to guard over you at night. And you, you realize somebody's out there. His job is to keep an eye on my safety. God does that every night for us. He's over, he's watching over you, and he loves you, and he cares for you. And that's why the Bible tells us that we're not to be worrying. The second reason why, first reason is that God loves us. The second reason why we shouldn't be worrying is because God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and that means that God orders and directs everything that takes place in the world. God is infinitely sovereign. Nothing takes place apart from God's will. God... All things happen according to the counsel of God's will, the Bible says. Everything happens according to the counsel of God's will. And notice Jesus is basing our not worrying on that. Look at verse 22 again of Luke 12. He says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. By the way, that's one of the themes of this chapter. And that is, I, I want to help you reorient and understand what life is all about. Life is not all about this mass, produ uh, this mass uh, 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 chasing after money and possessions and food and clothing and making that what life is all about. Life is way more important than that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 23. Life is more than food in the body and more, more than clothing. That, that it, it, it makes, it's bigger than that. Look at verse 15. In the context, Jesus was asked about uh, helping somebody with an inheritance. And he says, verse 15, and he said to him, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. I'm trying to help you to see Jesus saying that life is more precious and more special and more important than just how much stuff you can accumulate, how much money you can get. But then he brings in the sovereignty of God. Verse 24, he says this, consider the ravens that they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? So he starts talking about the birds, and then he talks about the flowers. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of them. If then God so clothes the grass, so God clothes the grass. God feeds the birds. God paints the flowers, each individual one. It is an act of the sovereignty of God and is the act of the direct action of God that these flowers are, are as beautiful as they are. Every single one of them. That's what God is about. That's what a sovereign, infinite God does. He's feeding birds. He's clothing flowers. Now, recently, we've had an avian flu. We've had flu that birds are passing. They've got their own little pandemic. And they have to social distance now, these little birds. No, they truly do. They have to social distance. In fact, they're telling us now that we're not supposed to feed birds in a bird feeder. 
because that birds in a bird feeder get all together and they don't social distance and they don't wear their masks and then they, they start passing this flu to each other. So you're not allowed to feed them anymore. So I stopped feeding my birds, okay? And the other day I was sitting there and I was actually sitting in front of a window. I pray in front of a window and I was sitting there in front of a window and there was Mr. and Mrs. Cardinal who I normally feed. And, uh, and they were out there and I, there's woods across the street from me and they were out there in the woods and they were like picking up leaves and they were like, and I'm, and, and I actually got a little bit of a panic. I was like, they're going to starve. Like, I'm not feeding them anymore. They're going to starve. Like, where out there and all of these leaves? And, and it's the springtime. Where in the world do you find seeds in the springtime right now? You know, I mean, the snow has just melted. Where are they going to find food? Where are they going to And I'm watching them, and they're working real hard, and they're trying to find, they're probably cursing me at the same time. And they're, and they're saying, and, and I realize they're not going to starve at all because God is feeding them. God is directing their minds and their actions. And I'm just, this, this one little couple right there that I'm watching, God is directing their minds and their actions to lift up certain leaves in order to find certain seeds. You see, that's what Jesus is telling us to do. Look at verse 24. Consider the ravens. That word means to meditate, to, to, to tear it apart, to look with, with analytical eyes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have a barn, they don't have a combine, they don't have a spreader, they don't have fertilizer, they don't have any way of storing this, they don't have augers, they don't have grain wagons, they have nothing. But God directs every single bird on the face of the earth. God directs them and feeds them and guides them. Every single flower, every single flower that blooms yellow and red and all of this that you see here, every single flower, God paints, God colors in the sovereign mystery and wisdom of an eternal, infinite, sovereign God. He is interested in every single flower. The world is his greenhouse. And he's at work with every single individual flower. He can name them by name. Every single individual bird, he's feeding them. And you know what's wild? Flowers and birds aren't that important. In our scale of things, they're not that important. And that's brought out in this text. Look at the end of verse 24. How much more valuable are you than the birds? He's doing this, but how much more valuable are you? He loves the birds. He's feeding the birds. These silly little birds. He loves them and cares for them and feeds them. How much more is he going to take care of you? You're his child. You're his beloved child. He's hardwired toward you. Look at verse 27. He clothes all of these lilies so they're beautiful. Look at verse 28. If God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. There's a priority here. And yet this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look at verses seven, uh, uh, 6 and 7. Same chapter. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And those are Assyrians. They're very, very like nothing, like 16th of a penny or something like that. Are not two five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? God knows every single little insignificant bird. Verse, verse 7, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God has a priority here, and the priority is his children. Now, let's add to this. 
Let's add to this. God is, God loves you deeply. God is sovereign over everything. God is in control of all things, feeds, birth. The night is as day to him. And let's just add to this quickly, just, just, just to fill out the picture a little bit. This God is all powerful. Nothing can stop him. He does whatever his will is. There's no challenge too hard. There's no enemy too great. There's nothing that he can't do. He is all powerful. Nothing can stop him. And he is all knowing. He knows everything. And therefore, this all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God who cares about you and who's intimately involved in your life so that he could give you the number of hairs that are upon your head right now, for this God, no problem is too big. No challenge is too great. In fact, truly for this God, no problem is a problem. If you have a problem and you bring it to God, it's no problem. It's no problem to God. No matter how difficult and intricate and puzzling and challenging the problem is that you're facing right now, that's weighing on you right now and that's tempting you to worry right now, that's no problem with God. Think of it. Think of a little child. Think of a little child. Just saw two of them yesterday. Uh, coming up to a screen door and all the fun's going on out there and they come up to the screen door and they climb up on that screen door and they can't get through that screen door to get out there where all the fun is they got a problem they got a problem they can't get through that screen door they can't reach the handle they can't open the screen door they, they got a problem now for me that was no problem oh, hey you want to climb here Zip. come on out there you go zip no problem almighty all powerful all sovereign loving grandpa came and opened that amazing door that I couldn't even know. And dear friends, that's how big of a problem your problems are to God. They're no problem. He's God. They're no problem, okay? And finally, let's add this. God is infinitely wise. Infinitely wise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is different than knowledge. You can have, you can have a ton of knowledge and know stuff and be really unwise. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge or to take a situation and to work it out so that it will work out the best. Wisdom is able to see what needs to be done and then to use, do, it's kind of a practical knowledge how to get there. But then you add a moral element to it. Wisdom sees what's the best, what's the good, and then knows how to get there. God is infinitely wise. God is infinitely wise. All you have to do is study the human immune system. All you have to do is study uh, nature and how things are put together. All you have to do is study things and you realize how incredibly wise and how, how incredibly amazing God is in everything that he does. God is infinitely wise. And therefore, when God knows what the good is, he knows how to get that to it. Now, you have to realize, dear friends, wisdom is not straightforward. It's not always the wisest thing to do things the easy way. So if dad said, if you come to, somebody comes to dad and says, hey, dad, I, 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 the kids are all taking a field trip. It's going to be an overnight. I need $100, dad. Can you give me $100? And dad says to you, no, I'm not going to give you $100. I want you to mow lawns for that money. Now, dad is not doing that because he doesn't love you. He's actually doing that because he loves you. But dad in his wisdom also understands this. 
that if he just gives you the money, that could encourage laziness in you. If he just gives you the money, that could encourage an entitlement that every time you put your hand out, somebody's supposed to put money in it. It could, it, it could, it could cause, he, he wants to develop within you values like, like work ethic and values like uh, endurance and values like knowing the value of money. After you've mowed five lawns, then you realize now you have $100. It takes a lot of work to get $100. This $100 is valuable. I'm not going to waste this $100. You, you, Dad wants you to know all of that stuff. And so in his wisdom, he determines, no, I'm not giving you the money. You're going to earn the money. And you see, dear friends, that's how God deals with us in our lives. That's why we have trials. That's why we have struggles. That's why we have challenges. It's not because God doesn't love us. It's because God does love us. And, he's, uh, and in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite sovereignty and in, in his, 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 his overall caring for us, he allows these things into our lives. That's why James tells us to count it all joy, brethren, when you face trials because they're going to develop endurance, perseverance, and maturity. That's why Peter says, if trials have come into your life, there's a needs be. There's a reason. God has brought this trial into your life for a reason, and he's developing things within you. And so God, who loves you, is going to allow trials to come into your life. And one of the things that God uses trials for in our lives is to draw us and drive us to him, to him. It makes us pray more fervently. It makes us believe his promises and wrestle with the truth of those promises. But it makes us run to him and find in him our grace. As the hymn writer says, Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul on thee. And there are times that trials cause us to that. So let's apply this to ourselves. How, how can we apply this to ourselves? Well, again, remember I began by saying this. There is no reason to ever worry again in our lives. None. God's, God, 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 God's just said it to us in his word. Now let's go back to the all-inclusive. Let's, let's take a man and his wife at the all-inclusive. They got there. They checked in. They got their bathing suits on. They're out at the beach. They got their suntan lotion on. They're finally ready. He's laying back. He just feels the stress leaving him. And about an hour later, she sits up and says, she's just going through her purse. And he's like, dear, what are you doing? And she says, well, what are we going to eat? I I'm hungry. What, what are we going to eat? I've gone through my purse and I found a mint and an old granola bar, half eaten. And he's like, do you not understand that we're in an all-inclusive here? All, what do you want to eat right now? Well, I'd like to have some, okay. Could you bring my wife a piece of pie? And they said, sure, done. Relax. A little bit of time goes by, and all of a sudden, what are we going to do for dinner? What, should I get to, is there a Walmart nearby? Should I buy something? Maybe, maybe I should go to Aldi's. Did, did you bring any cash? What are you doing? We're in an all-inclusive. We're going to go there. So he takes her into the restaurant. She sees all this beautiful food, lobster, steak. And I'm like, how are we going to pay for this? Did you bring a credit card? This is going to blow our food budget. We've already paid. It's yours. She says, you know, and, and she goes on and on and on. What are we doing in laundry? What about she? I got to go make the bed. No, no, they're going to do that for you. They're going to do it. Finally, he's going to turn to her and said, hey, I have to tell you something. I need to tell you two things. Number one, you're ruining my vacation. And number two, you're ruining your vacation. Relax. Calm down. 
All this stuff is paid for. And dear friends, isn't that exactly what we do? Your life should be a life of peace. My life should be a life of peace and calm and joy and delight in who God is in this all-inclusive, which is the, the adopted childhood of a sovereign, mighty, infinitely loving, heavenly father who not only is going to take care of me and make sure I got food in my refrigerator, but is doing it for all the birds that are hopping around my yard. He is good. He is God. We need to stop worrying. How do we do it? How do we do it? Well, go back to Philippians 4, and here's how you do it. Notice what it says. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. There's a command. There's a challenge. There's what we're to do. Stop worrying. There's no reason to worry. Stop looking at your circumstances. Stop looking at things around you. Stop focusing. See, some of us are addicted to worry. As soon as one thing is, 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 is fixed, we, we, we fixate on another one. Then we fixate on another. And some of us are so addicted to worry that if we're not worrying, we're worried because we should be worrying about something. And so we actually think about something that we can worry about. We're worriers. We're worriers. We're worriers. When the Bible says there's no reason to worry, stop worrying. You have an infinite God. Stop looking at your problems. Stop looking at the wind and waves like Peter did. Stop looking at all the things that might happen. Stop looking and trying to figure out how things are going. Stop picking up, putting down one worry and picking up another one and putting that down and picking up another one. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Look to God and know you have this Father. And know that he's there. Know he's hardwired toward you. Know that he loves you and he's going to take care of you. Stop worrying. Number two, look at what it says here. But let your requests be made known to God. I love this verse, by the way. It just says, let God know the problem. Now, little, little Danny and little Hazel yesterday they didn't even let me know the problem. The problem was the screen door. They didn't even let me know the problem. They just sat there like, <laughs> and I knew the problem. I knew the problem. And it was an easy problem. It was no problem. This says, let your request be made known to God. God, God, here. you don't even have to say words. God, here's, here's a problem I got. Here, here, God, here, here, take this one. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares upon him. Throw them on him. Toss them to him. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares about you. So get good at that. Get good at turning directly to God as soon as the anxiety starts. Get ready. Give it to God. Give it to God. And see, God is saying to you, listen, there's no reason for you to be worried because I'm telling you right now, just give it to me. Give it to me. And your problem is, it's nothing to me. This, you call this a problem. It's no problem. But then thirdly, let me encourage you to do this. And I don't know how to say this, so I'll just say it this way. Seal the deal. Between you and God, seal the deal. Actively close the deal. How do we close a deal with people? Well, you shake hands. You're going to buy this off of you? Yeah, I'm going to buy that off of you. Okay, what's the price? Okay, this is the price. Good. Okay, you come tomorrow, bring the money. I'll got this thing. Okay, good. You're not going to sell it to anybody else, are you? No, I'm not going to sell it to anybody else. I'm selling it to you. That's the deal, me and you. Okay, let's shake. Seal the deal. Or let's sign a thing. Here, sign this, this sales agreement. Seal the deal. Seal the deal. You know what many of us don't do? And you probably don't do this very well. 
I'm not good at it. I had to, I've had to get really good at it, and that's seal the deal with God. See, God says, let your requests be made known to me. Cast your cares upon me. And you know what we do? We say, oh, God, please help me. Oh, I've got this anxiety. Oh, I'm scared. Oh, I don't know what to do. Oh, God, please. Oh, God, please. Oh, God, please. You tell me to come. You tell me to be anxious for nothing. Oh, God, please. Oh, God. And you never shut up. You never seal the deal. We never seal the deal. This is what we're supposed to do. God, you said cast this care upon you. God, make this request known to you. God, let's this promise to you. Here, God, here's my problem. I give it to you. It's now your problem. It's not my problem. And God, I'm going to trust you with this now. I'm going to leave it in your hands. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to worry about it. It's yours. That's faith. That's how faith works. And then look at, look at this little phrase that's added in there, too, in verse 6. With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Now, that's not to say, oh, then just start giving. No, no, no. I think that that has to do with this verse. I think we seal the deal with thanksgiving by saying this. And now, God, I want to pause and thank you that you have taken this problem from me. I thank you that you love me and you're going to do the best with me on this. I thank you that you are infinitely sovereign and wise and all-powerful. I thank you that you have to... Thank you, God. Thank you so much. You're my father and you love me and this is a done deal and you're good. Thank you. I thank you. That's part of sealing the deal. And then, dear friends, when you take it back, and we do, don't we? We take it back. We start ruining our vacation again. We start ruining it again. Apologize to God. Say, God, I'm sorry. By lack of faith, I took this back, and here I am. Please forgive me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you're so patient. You're so kind. Here, I'm giving it back to you again. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm giving it back to you again. And then look at verse 8, by the way. And I don't have time to go into this, but then Paul says, fill your mind with other things. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Because why? You don't have nothing to worry about anymore because you've just given all your worries to God. I know that some of you struggle with this. And I want to really urge you, stay in the process of training and fighting in order that you would be a worry-free person. There's no reason to worry. So let's stop worrying. Get good at this. And don't stop until you're good at leaving things in God's hands and experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. Don't stop. But I want to say one word by way of closing, and this just comes from years of pastoral experience. Some of you here may think that you're good at this, and you're actually not. You're not good at it. Because you're not, and I know that some spouses at times just, they don't like to hear their spouse listen to a sermon like this. Why would a spouse not want their spouse to hear? Or some parents may not want their children to listen to a sermon like this. Why? Why would somebody not want them? Because some of you may think that you're good at this when you're actually not good at this. You say, oh, yes, I am. I never worry about a thing. I am just so happy-go-lucky. I've just got this thing down. No, you actually don't. Your problem is, is that you're irresponsible. And because you're irresponsible, what I mean by this, you're a personality, you're a person who doesn't think ahead, who doesn't plan, who doesn't work, who doesn't provide the way you should, 
who, who, who doesn't take the responsible actions that are necessary to take for things. See, the Bible says that a man is supposed to be, or a woman is supposed to be responsible. In Proverbs 22, 3, for example, a prudent man, he foresees trouble and he hides, the Bible says. But a simple man passes on and is punished. The, the righteous man knows the state of his flock and he, and he prepares. The righteous person is like an ant who prepares for the future. This, this passage isn't saying, oh, I'm just going to be carefree and I'm never going to think about anything and, and I'm going to call that faith in God. And sometimes that's not faith in God. That's irresponsibility. No, we need, to, we need to cast things upon God. It's a wonderful thing to lie down in bed at night and before you go to sleep, say, God, I have made every legitimate effort that you have given me the responsibility to do, to do what I could possibly do as you have guided me and given me strength. But now I cast this care upon you. I know you'll be awake all night and you'll be watching over me and you'll be taking care of this. God, I cast this care upon you. I'm not. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say, I have been responsible. And I would like to give a warning right now to young women who are here especially young women who are here, young unmarried women, I would like to give you a warning. Don't marry a guy like this. Don't marry a guy like this. And by the way, these guys are real attractive. They're the life of the party. They're the guys that everybody laughs about. They're the guys that have fun. They're almost a breath of fresh air. They're just lighthearted. They don't have a care in the world. They just like to hat, laugh and party. They are these kind of guys. And let me tell you something, dear, dear ladies who are here today. These men make awful husbands. They make awful heads of the household. Because they're not responsible. They're not men of faith. They're men of irresponsibility. Dear ones, don't, don't, don't let irresponsibility be a cloak. Trust God, trust God, but be responsible. Do you know God is your father? Are you sitting here today saying, oh, what a blessing I have. This God is my father. All is going to be good. I can't even wait to go to bed tonight knowing he's going to be sitting there watching the house, sitting there even watching the little birds sleeping on their nest, sitting there because he is so good, he is so loving. Do you have this God as your God? Do you know him? Are you trusting in him? Have you come to him through his only begotten, beloved son, Jesus Christ? Have you come and accepted Jesus and trusted in him and haven't been forgiven? Oh, I hope that that is where you're at. Because that is how God becomes your father. And blessed are you who have God as your father. Let's pray together. Father, help us, we pray, to never worry again. And we know that seems impossible to us right now, but there's really no reason to. And we just need to believe your promises, take you up at your promises. We need to meditate about who you are and what you are. And that in you, we live and move and have our being. In you, we sleep at night. In you, we are safe. In you, we are beloved. Father, help us to rest in that. Help us, we pray, to just trust you. And thank you so much that this is true. Every problem that ever is going to come into our lives, you're going to be there right in the midst of it, helping us. You're never going to leave us alone in it. You'll always be good to us. Thank you. We thank you. We praise you. We love you. In your precious name we pray.